Galatians chapter 3. We are um, in Sermon 5 this week of a 14-part series from the book of Galatians that we are calling How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. Uh, if you don't get what that title's all about, you maybe need to hear some messages from the previous weeks or just hang with us. You'll get that eventually. The title of today's message is, You Are So Dumb, You Are Really Dumb For Real. <laughs> and those of you that get that, spend time on YouTube. If you don't, you don't. You're okay. Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. We're going to actually work our way through the first 14 verses of the book of Galatians, which is a huge endeavor for us. So we're going to be here for a long time. We're just going to read the first four verses and then get into it. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul speaking in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 to the churches in Galatia says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain. Was it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible passage before us today, and we thank you for the beautiful thing you've been doing in us as we study the book of Galatians, of teaching us more about the gospel and its implications for our lives, not just for salvation, but for everyday living. Thank you that you're teaching us about the standing that we have before you in grace. Lord, your abundant acceptance of us because of the cross, the access that we have to you and the throne of grace. And Lord, we, we just ask as a church that these things would not be lost on us, that we would live gospel-shaped lives for the glory of God and that those lives would be infectious in our communities and our cities and unto the nations. And so Lord, we ask together now that you would anoint me to teach your truth for your glory and that in your grace you would open our hearts and minds to be transformed by your Spirit. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we need to remind ourselves of the issue at hand, and that can be done very quickly by looking at the last part of the last verse of chapter 2 that we previously studied. It says there, If keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Okay, so... Here's the issue. If we could be justified before God by either the things that we do that are good or the things that we refrain from doing that are bad, if we could be justified before God because of those actions, justified, we defined it in a previous lesson, it's to be declared innocent, but also to be declared righteous. We're not guilty anymore. We're innocent now but we are also worthy of being treated excellent by God. If we could be declared innocent and be made worthy of being treated excellent by God, by the good things that we do or the bad things that we refrain from doing, if that were the case, then Jesus never would have died on the cross. The way to be accepted before God would have just been the American approach to things. 
right? Try harder, do better, be better. But the truth is that we cannot be good enough. Scripture tells us that we are exceedingly wicked, more so than we've ever imagined. We are wicked in the sight of God. So we cannot be good enough no matter how hard we try. And then secondly, we find that we actually suffer under the demands to do so, the demands of the law, because we discover that we are enslaved to sin. Where once we thought ourselves free before Christ, we are actually enslaved to sin. And when we discover the right thing to do, we find ourselves still doing the wrong thing. And when we know we want to do the good thing, we find ourselves doing the bad thing because we are slaves to sin. And so God, in his love, made another way for us to be accepted by him and have access to him. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, at one time, the Galatians had understood this very clearly. As it says in the last part of verse one, the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. At one time, they had gotten that, that it was only the cross that affords us the acceptance of God and access to God through the forgiveness of sins and imputed righteousness. They got that as clear as a picture. As if they had seen it, they understood it because of the preaching of Paul when he had established the churches in Galatia. But now the folly of the Galatians is that though they knew God had first accepted them according to grace through faith and the finished work of Christ on the cross for them, They were now, having become Christians, trying to stay right with God by trying harder, doing better, being good enough. What they were doing, in essence, was failing to rest in and rejoice in what Christ had done for them. Instead of resting in and rejoicing about what Jesus had done for them on the cross, they were now thinking, we need to try harder to somehow daily please God to be accepted. We need to do better. We we need to be good enough. There's standards on us now. And interestingly enough, we, we seem to have the same problem. Indicated by the fact that on some days we feel like good Christians and on other days we feel like bad Christians. Many of you have come into church feeling one of these two ways today. Some of you had a pretty good week. You're thinking, I'm a pretty good Christian. I I read my Bible this week, and I prayed a little bit this week, and I I didn't watch any bad movies this week, and I didn't gossip that much, and man, I came to church even in the rain, and I'm, I'm I'm a pretty good Christian. And you're sitting there in the chair today thinking, why wouldn't God bless me? I'm expecting God to bless me. Others of you, and this would be more the camp that I identify with, look back on your week and think, I'm not a very good Christian. I I didn't didn't spend much time in the Bible this week. I I didn't pray much. I I saw things I shouldn't have seen, watched things I shouldn't have seen. I, I, I know I said things with my mouth that never should have came out of my mouth. I know I've thought things that are dishonoring to God, and I, I don't, I'm not a good Christian, and so you're, you're sitting here today and you, you don't expect God to bless you. You actually think he might 
some way want to curse you. And so Paul says to them and to us, you foolish Galatians. How foolish can you be? Or in modern vernacular, you are so dumb, you are really dumb for real. (laughs) As one respected translator put it, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. And then Paul likens this approach as a Christian of trying to relate to God, either good Christian or bad Christian. He likens this approach to an evil spell in verse 1. In the New American Standard, he says, you've been bewitched that this way of thinking that I, having become a Christian through the cross of Christ, have to now daily please him. And if I do, he might bless me. And if I don't, he might curse me. That is an evil. That is an evil thought. In light of the cross and grace. And so then Paul begins by by challenging them and us. Verse 2, he says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Now, when he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit here, he's talking about salvation, the moment of salvation, because the moment you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit as being in you, taking up residence in you. It's only by the Spirit that we are regenerate, born again, call God Abba Father. So he's talking about the salvation moment. What he's asking them there is this. What role did you play in your salvation? When you were saved, born again, regenerated, forgiven, made brand new, received the Holy Spirit, did that take place because you had been behaving well? Because you obeyed the rules? In other words, was there a point in time in your life where God said to you, okay, now you have reached a level of obedience where you have earned regeneration, where you have earned forgiveness, where you have earned being born again by the Spirit, where you've earned the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the obvious answer is no. Paul says in verse 2, of course not. He continues, you received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. You received the Spirit. You were born again, regenerate, made brand new, forgiven because you believed the message you heard about Jesus, which is, in a nutshell, the gospel. You and we, me, we, we have not, nor can we ever reach a level of obedience whereby we earn justification before God. Where God says, because you're doing so well, you are now innocent and worthy of being treated excellent. You have not and you cannot ever come to that place. Therefore, Christ did come and did die in your place that we might be justified, declared innocent even though we're guilty, treated excellent even though we don't deserve it. And then, if Christ and his performance has gained us forgiveness, acceptance, and favor before God, even though we've performed very badly, wickedly, the Bible would say, what makes us think 
that now we need to perform well in order to continue to be accepted and have access and favor. Where did we get that idea? Paul says it this way in verse 3. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? If it's a work of the Spirit in your life, that you are made brand new, forgiven, born again, why are you trying now to, to finish that? That's the idea of perfect, to finish, to complete, to become mature. Why are you trying to finish that in your own human effort? To begin to think this way, as we often do, that yes, I've been forgiven, but gosh, I need to do better if God's going to at all be pleased with me. Paul would say in the book of Galatians, as it says in chapter 1, verse 6, is to desert God. To desert God. As the New Living Translation says in chapter 1, verse 6, to turn away from God. It is to commit spiritual treason because it is an offense to, an abandoning of, and a denial of the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 4, have you experienced so much, the salvation experience so far, for nothing? Surely it wasn't in vain, was it? Then in verse 5, Paul reiterates and presses further from a different direction the question that he previously posed to them in verse 2. He says, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you? He adds another component now. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believed the message you heard about Christ. Now, the last time he posed a question in verse 2, it was from the perspective of the people receiving. This one is from the perspective of God giving. Does God give you his spirit to live in you? Because you obey so well. The obvious answer is no. It is through believing, it is through faith in Christ, trust and complete trust in what he's done for us that we're saved and, and that God works in our lives after salvation. It's exclusive from how well we behave or how poorly we behave. So that, here's what the gospel does. To the law truster, the gospel removes from them any right to say, I've earned this. And for the lawbreaker, the gospel removes from them the necessity to say, I can never have this. I can never have forgiveness, newness, the promise of heaven. Now think about the second component they added there and works miracles among you. Imagine. Imagine if God only worked in your lives. Miraculous, however you want to say it. Imagine if God only worked in your lives if you obeyed the law perfectly. How how then, if that were the case, how how then can we have any, any hope 
in life's difficulties? How, how then could we have a sense of the possible resourcing of our lives from heaven? The, the access to God, the, the ability to pray. How could we have any hope if God only worked miracles among us and when we obeyed well? There's a couple in our church. They're two of Kate and I's best and oldest friends. Grew up with them. Amber and Ian O'Neill. Ian and I have been best buddies since we were that high. They had their second child yesterday at Cottage Hospital. Andrew O'Neill. And little Andrew was born without a left hand. And it looks as though he may have Down syndrome. And he's got a big sort of bulge in his abdomen. They don't, they don't know what it is. If what some of you think is true, that God worked in your life according to your obedience rather than according to Christ's obedience, then what hope would this mother and father have? Because what they could expect from God would be fully dependent upon their performance that week. Prior to the birth of their child, how good were they? How much did they obey? What did they watch on TV? What were their thought processes like? Did they gossip at all? And if they did, then they could have no hope of approaching God. There'd be no reason for me to exhort you to pray for the O'Neill family because their iniquities have made a separation between them and their God. They haven't performed well. If that were the case, then the heavens would be shut up to us when our hearts are broken. This is not how God deals with you. This is not how God deals with you. We read truth when we read in Hebrews 5, 16, 4, 16, excuse me. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. <clears throat> Some of you think that the bad things that happen to you in your life are God punishing you? Some of you think that when something bad happens that God must be punishing you in some way. The, the idea is this, this thing that's going on, it's God harming me in some way because of my failures. I want, I want us to think deeply and theologically upon that. What would that mean? That would mean that you still owe some debt for your sin. That what Christ did on the cross was insufficient. If the bad things that happen to us are God punishing us for our failures, then Christ was a liar on the cross when he said it is paid in full. And yet I confess that in the last year and a half of, of dealing with my daughter's cancer and some of my 
more weak moments, the thought would enter into my mind. Is this happening because I, I've been bad in some way? Does, does my innocent little girl have cancer for the second time because I, some of my sin, some of my sins, of which I have many, is, is, is the Lord not healed her supernaturally because I, I haven't performed well enough? Now let, let's think upon that thought because some of you are thinking this about your lives. If that is the case, what then is the end? The only end would be after she suffered enough, after we suffered enough, then some debt would be paid. There would be some expiation, some atonement. Some reparation would be made. And then, only after there had been enough suffering, we would be accepted before God again and the resources of heaven open to us. That is an affront to the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. That would mean that I am not accepted, that I do not have access, and that the debt was never paid in full, and Christ is a liar. That would mean that in the worst times in life, there's no heavenly resource, no heavenly compassion. But that is not the case. Because Christ has once and for all taken all of the wrath of God upon himself. He has paid the fullness of the debt of every sin we have ever committed, will commit, and are committing at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are accepted completely and utterly before God and have open access and favor before him so that we believe the exhortation to therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need because of what Christ has done. Having said that, we must mention that though God never punishes his children, because Christ took the fullness of the punishment on the cross, or he is a liar. God does discipline his children. Do not confuse discipline with punishment. It's easy for us to confuse because our parents didn't know how to practice the difference. They weren't always sure how to discipline us for our good and separate that from punishing us in their wrath. But your heavenly father is nothing like your parents. And he punished, he brutally punished Christ that he might forever be kind to us. And his discipline in our lives is a tangible, immediate expression of his kindness toward us. For we read in Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines us for our good 
so that we may share in his holiness. That, 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 that can't be punishment. So that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That cannot be punishment. It is God enabling us to share in his holiness and to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Christian, you see the folly then. You see the folly that if Ian and Amber could only approach God according to their good behavior, there there would be no hope in life's worst moments. If my daughter's cancer or her not being miraculously healed of it were God's punishment, then her sins, my sins, somebody's sins were never dealt with at the cross. So Paul presses it further by now in verses 6 and 7 appealing to Abraham because his opponents here had been appealing, appealing to Moses. Moses received the law. Moses said we should obey the law. We should be circumcised and obey the law. And in a brilliant stroke, Paul trumps them by saying, you want to talk about Moses? Let's go several centuries earlier to Abraham. And in verse 6, he says, in the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Abraham was counted righteous before God. Because of his faith. Because Abraham behaved well? No, Abraham's obedience was much like ours. Sometimes it was pretty good. Sometimes it was really bad. How about the whole Ishmael debacle? It wasn't according to his obedience. It was according to his belief and trust in God. Because of his faith. That unfolds in Genesis chapter 15 where we have Abraham lamenting before the Lord saying, God, I I have no offspring. I'm I'm 75 years old. My wife is barren. I have many things, but but I have no son, no heir. And a servant, a slave in my house, their child will be an heir to all my things. And he's lamenting to God. And God says to him, Oh, Abram, I will make you a great father. And he takes him outside his tent and he shows him the stars in the sky. And he says, as many as are the stars in the sky, so shall your descendants be. And then the punchline in verse six of Genesis 15 is, and Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Exclusive from his obedience. In fact, Abraham isn't circumcised until chapter 17, 24 years later. So that just makes null and void the argument of the opponents in Galatia who are saying, you need to be circumcised, you need to obey, and you need to do certain things if you're going to be accepted before God. Wait a minute. Abraham was declared righteous before God 24 years before any of that took place with him. So verse 7 declares, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. And Paul goes on to tell them that this was always the plan. There's never been another way. Okay, God has always 
worked according to faith. Verse 8, he says, What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All the nations will be blessed through you. There's a reference to Jesus, the coming Messiah, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. You see, it's not that, and we often think this, in the Old Testament, God dealt with people according to their behavior, but in the New Testament, it's according to faith and a belief in who God is and what God has done. It has always been that way. The point of the Old Testament is they didn't behave well, they could not behave well, so they needed a Savior, they needed a Redeemer, as do we, and God spoke of it already in Genesis chapter 12. Through you, all the nations will be blessed, meaning eventually through the lineage of Abraham, Messiah would come as the Savior of the world. So he says in verse 9, So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. The blessing of being justified, declared innocent even though we're guilty, treated excellent even though we're not worthy, by grace through faith and what Christ has done for us. Now he presents the opposite side of things. Now he explains what the implications are for those of us who are still counting on dealing with God on the basis of our performance. And this is a lot of people in our culture, both inside the church and outside the church, because we imagine God to be, as we spoke of in previous weeks, a negotiator. That's how most people think of God, that they're going to die and they're going to come to the judgment day and there's going to be God with this giant cosmic scale. And on one side, God is going to heap on all the bad stuff you ever did. Just boom, and it's just bam, just tilts that way. And then God will pull out some of the good stuff that you did and put it on the other side of the scale. And oh, getting pretty close. But there you are. And because God is a negotiator, you say, oh, oh, Lord. But remember that day in March when I went to church, even though it was pouring rain outside? And God will go, oh, touche, boom. And the tail, the scales tip in your favor because you negotiated with God. And this is how a lot of Christians think daily. Evidenced by the fact that we pray these kind of prayers. God, I will do thus and so if you will do thus and so. God, I will be better, try harder, do more, give more. If you will just, whatever your felt need is from God at the time. So in verse 10, Paul addresses the implications of that. He says, but those who depend on the law to make themselves right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands, all the commands that are written in God's book of the law, all the commands. There are 613 of them. You can't even name the top 10. Cursed is a person who does not obey all of God's commands. You see, because God's standard is perfection. And, and humanity hates this because we, we do not like that standard. When we were in college and we had profs who didn't grade on some sort of a curve, we were disgusted with them. We're like, what kind of a 
beast are you? You're working from a 100% scale? What kind of an inhumane beast are you? We all did this much, so that should be good. We're all just kind of in this. And when someone didn't do that, we, we thought it unfair. We think it unfair that God has a standard of perfection. God does not exist to subject himself to your skewed, perverted version of fair. God is holy and righteous in every way. And God says we have sinned and it has earned us wrath. And if you have sinned in one area of the law, you are guilty of the entire burden of it. So once then we we, we see that, humanity repositions itself to say, okay, there's not much room for negotiation here, so perhaps God is not negotiator, perhaps God is more like Santa Claus. And we spoke about that a few weeks ago. That yes, I am guilty, but perhaps God is not that concerned with it. And he's a grandfatherly sort of figure that kind of winks at it and it's going to be okay. What the Bible is declaring here is that there is no hope of trying to be right with God on the basis of what you do that is good and what you refrain from doing that is bad. Because you are guilty, cursed, if your obedience is ever anything less than 100%. It's not a sliding scale, not graded on a curve. It isn't a matter of good outweighing bad. James chapter 2, verse 10, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. So then back in our text in verse 11, Paul says, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Then he says in verse 12, this way of faith, this way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. How are you functioning in your life and and how you daily think about yourself and how you daily think and imagine that God thinks about and acts toward you? The way of faith or the way of the law? We often backslide into functioning according to the way of the law, thinking, I haven't pleased God. Things aren't going to go well. I'm pleasing God. Things should go well. I'm a good Christian. I'm a bad Christian. And what Paul is saying here is how is it that we have come to imagine that Christianity consists primarily of what we do for God? Where where, where did we get that? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus Christ? Christ suffered for your sins, so now you better be good. How, How is that good news? How have we come to that? I'll suggest a way that I think we've come to that. I think that we default to that because often we have failed to cognizantly, purposefully, carefully, theologically, daily ground our identity in what Christ has done for us and our being united with him. Which reveals and explains to us how God loves us when we fail to ground our identity in the love of God as manifest in what Christ has done for us and us being united to Christ, when we fail to do that, then there is no other option for us but to try to locate our identity, our sense of self-worth, other ways. 
So then we do it with performance. And there's no way to really locate ourselves now if we don't ground our identity in what Christ has done unless we compare ourselves to others. And so we put the burden upon others. You're not good enough. You don't try hard enough. We do it in the church all the time. Good Christian, bad Christian. And it is a failure to ground our identity and our sense of self-worth in the love of God as manifest in the cross of Christ and our being united with Christ so that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. Here's the biblical language. You were crucified with Christ. You are risen to new life with Christ. You are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. You are co-heirs of God with Christ so that what is true of Christ is true of us most poignantly. God loves you as he loves his son. And when your identity is rescued in that truth, then we begin to live the gospel. The law says, as John Stott says, do this. But the gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement, but the gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us to obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us to believe. So verse 13, Paul says, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. Because the idea there was when an ancient Israelite failed to obey the law in a way that was punishable by death, they would be stoned usually and then they would be hung on a spike or a tree for everyone to see as a visible symbol of divine rejection. She did not measure up. She is rejected by God. Dead and hung on a spike, hung on a tree. Christ was hung on the cross in our place. So real is it that the biblical language is he became a curse for us in the New American Standard. He became sin. He became a curse in sin, so much so that Christ cries out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 1 Corinthians 5, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him only by nailing Jesus to the cross. His back ripped wide open from the back of his neck to the back of his knees, dragging up and down as he gasped for breaths on the cross. His nails in his hands pierced. His head pierced with a thorn of crowns. His side eventually ripped open. Beaten beyond recognition, the prophet Isaiah says. Spit upon, mocked, hung naked with common criminals. And that is nothing. That is nothing in comparison to the truth of the fact that his father made him a curse, made him sin, and poured upon Christ the weight 
of the sins of history and unleashed all of his wrath so that Christ would say, my God, my God. And so Colossians would say to us, chapter 2, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Listen, he took the certificate of debt. The list of all the ways that we had ever failed and nailed it to the cross. So there is nothing to negotiate. God does not come to you with a list saying, Oh, look, see how you failed. What are you going to do about this? There is no place from which to negotiate. God brings nothing to the table and charges against us for Christ nailed it to the cross so that the table is a banqueting table that only says come because Christ said it is finished. There's nothing to be added. There's nothing to be added to the favor we've been shown. There's nothing to do but believe. Do you believe? To put the fullness of your trust in what Christ has done, to confess him, Lord, repent of your sins, and trust in him for forgiveness this life and the next. There's nothing to add to it but to believe. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. It is not a demand, it is an offer. So Paul finishes in verse 14 by saying, Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. We who are believers in what Christ has done, not doers trying to figure out what we must do. And all of this, the Galatians should have known. They should have known. They never should have fallen in to such foolishness. And we should know better in our daily lives. And the way that we do that is the way that they should have done it, to have kept the cross before us so that it was like a picture. like a picture, to keep the cross before us in daily life. This is why we teach about the cross, we preach on the cross, we sing about the cross, we read scripture about the cross, we read books about the cross, we talk about the cross, we meditate about the cross. To keep it before us like a clear picture of what Christ has done for us. And in that then, we finally find rest for our weary souls and joy because we've been forgiven. And we approach life a different way with a different identity and place from which we work that we are loved and accepted explicitly. Lord, these truths... We need you to make them more real than ever before for each one of us. Lord, for some in this room, they've never been real. We ask that they're real now.
We ask that they would repent of their sins and call upon you to be saved. And for our daily lives, Lord, where we struggle under the weight of our failures and our shortcomings and our, our, our wickedness, we ask that the truth of what you've done for us on the cross would be like a picture. That we couldn't escape. A clear explanation and illustration of your incredible love toward us and your finished work for us. If you have any needs at all today, the prayer team is up here. It's a perfect day to come and get on your face before the Lord. Communion is here to celebrate these truths.